This is Aaron Wade. This is Avery Pearson. And we are recording our second podcast. We did our first one a year ago <laughs> and finally got around to listening it, to it. And both of us were like, wow, I kind of dig this. I want to do more of this. Um, yeah. So we're doing a podcast about books, restaurants, and things that pertain to our lives that we think are important. It might only be interesting to us, <laughs> but we'll, we will see. Um, so, yeah. I think uh, that's the best part is that we had a whole year to forget what we had said. And so the relevance of it was really cool. Yeah, it's such an example of our crazy, weird lives in the time warp of restaurants that yeah. a year passed and <laughs> felt like two days. Yep. Um, but everything we were talking about felt super relevant still. <laughs> yeah. Um, and oh, it was great. So today, being as we, both Avery and I do Lent every year, um, we're not Catholic, but we <laughs> nope. appreciate the tradition of 40 days of abstaining from something. Um, so we've been doing Lent on what, since like 2012? I think so. Since Pretty about, much your first year, right? Yeah, basically when I joined in 2012, I think that's when... Uh, that's when I started. We got so. some other restaurant peeps in our company on board. And so kind of keeping with that theme, we're talking about two books today about addiction, sobriety. Um, one's uh, Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Control Alcohol. And the reason we found out about that is because Holly Whitaker in her book Quit Like a Woman, which is the other book we're talking about, um, she was super inspired by Alan Carr, so I wanted to just read his book as well. Which I thought was funny because a lot of the her inspirations I really like. The Alan Carr book, I could not get down with. Like, yeah. I, just, I couldn't. Like, there were a lot of great things, but at the end of it, um, I think it actually took Hollywood Occur to kind of bring me around to the message. Understanding the message. Yeah. Yeah. So what, it's, it's funny. Quit Like a Woman is it's like a feminist, non-rule-based non-12 steps approach to sobering up by this badass named Holly Whitaker. Um, and Alan Carr has this whole easy way program that's also not a 12-step AA approach. Yeah. Um, and it's so, yeah, like, they both, right out of the gates, I think the similar thing about both of them is they they immediately take on the idea of normal drinking, right? So, right. so let's just say... I'm, I don't think of you or I as alcoholics. Right. So, so you know, if there are normal, like one thing for me is once I started doing Lent, because there was a time in my life where I really was drinking too much. And I so I started oh, stopping. Uh, and that opened up this whole kind of new world for me. And then I just started drinking less and less and less and less. And now it's just this ritual and tradition that I really love every year. I love it because it's happening right as spring's coming. The days are getting longer. Anyways, but I would say that probably both of us are quote-unquote normal drinkers. Well, both right. of these books like are so against that whole idea, and it really got me thinking because they both basically debunked the whole idea that there's such a thing as a normie, that's an AA term, right. a normal drinker, and then a sick, diseased drinker, you know, the alcoholic. And there's this weird nebulous period in between being a normal drinker and then the alcoholic and nobody can say like okay at this point you've crossed the line and now you're this it's more if you can handle your social and um work obligations then you're a normal drinker and you know it's totally fine and it's all normalized within the context of your greater social circle 
But then all of a sudden, if you start having problems with it or even question it, then suddenly you start tipping towards the alcoholic side. Right. And it, side. and it just, I think the Alan Carr thing that he's kind of, he's redundant, repetitive in this. He's pointing out that it doesn't really make sense the way that we have created this sort of ambiguous deadline, like delineation. Right. Uh, but then at the same time, can't quantify what is an alcoholic and what isn't. And yet on the other hand, it's, it's somehow definitive, right? And right. I, the other thing that Holly points out is just how stigmatized and shitty, basically, our atti- attitudes towards quote-unquote ad- addicts are or alcoholics. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that happens the moment that you try to stop, not when you're the healthy, <laughs> the crazy heavy drinker who's right. the life of the party, but as soon as you own up and say, I have a drinking problem, then you're like a pariah. Right, right. Then you're dangerous. And I think and I think both books touch on it is that part of the danger that you are as the quote alcoholic is that you're suddenly putting a mirror up to everyone else's alcoholism or like the the amount that they drink. And I like that um, Hollywood occurs really about um, not using that nomenclature and stepping away from it. Mm-hmm. Like screw normal drinker, not normal drinker. Uh, Alan Carr is like, you know, there, there's just two people. There's either drinkers or non-drinkers. And right. that's where it is. I felt this so hard when I was, because I was traveling a bunch the last week. So I was reading these books on planes. Mm-hmm. And I found myself surrounded by people getting wasted on airplanes. Because we talked about this. Like, right. what in the hell? The last 10 years? I mean, everyone used to like drink travel to like calm themselves down that's always been a thing but it seems like it's gone to a whole other level where people are just getting shit-faced on planes not to mention they're going from one screen to another screen to another screen like it's just such this crazy addictive display meanwhile i'm reading these two books trying to hide the covers i don't want anyone to think that i'm an alcoholic like how how ridiculous is that oh no you know the fact that there's a book about recovery that oh i might get judged as the crazy one right you know while everyone else is just slamming things (laughs) yep having this you know double or single wink wink you know people just like throwing i mean that's just how how that in particular is so normalized in our culture even though it's like six in the morning you know absolutely um yeah the one place where it's completely acceptable but meanwhile i was like no one can say the easy way to control all no one can see this i'm pushing it down my lap yeah (laughs) and i think yeah we just have such a problem with why won't we why why is it so hard to just own up to that you know to the fact that, like, I think the best part about the Alan Carr book that I, I love the pitcher plant metaphor because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that is, it's just a really apt way to think about it. So basically, the pitcher plant is, you know, one of those carnivorous plants, like the Venus flytrap or whatever. But the yeah. whole design of it is designed to lure a fly with its sweet, sticky nectar further and further and further down into the plant until eventually it's so weighed down with sticky nectar that it falls into the digestive juices and gets eaten up by the plant. It's also really cool that the plant is collecting like rainwater to create that digestive uh, stew in the bottom of it. Nature is just fascinating. I know. I know. That's a whole other thing. Well, so that's like... Yeah. That that pitcher plant metaphor, Mm. I thought was like he basically says... 
you know, it's a sliding scale. It's like it, it, everyone vis-a-vis alcohol is just at a different point in the pitcher plant, right? And I right. think that's an interesting way of looking at it. And I did. I felt like that was a good way too, because there, like there are a lot of people who are hanging out at the lip of it, partaking of the nectar, flying away, and not devolving into like the the glut of it. But eventually, but society has definitely shifted in this way that is. Oh my God! Basically pushing people, and it's basically like as if the pitcher plant became even more seductive, like because there's so much pain, and and absolutely, you know, I think, and that's something that she really gets into, and it, she relates it to another book that I loved called, well, you, I think his name is Johan Har. You wrote a book called Lost Connections. We have it at Modern. And, I haven't read that one. And yet. he is she that that comes later, but I think when she talks about why. Is addiction on the rise in our society right now? Like, yeah. and I think that, I mean, I think th- these books are ostensibly about substance abuse, but for me, it especially Holly Whitaker's book brought up so many other things. Yeah, um, because she, it has such a feminist thing, and Avery, my yeah. cisgendered, <laughs> hetero, <laughs> redheaded bro. Like, like, yeah. I, I love that you read this book with me because... Well, like, I, for myself, like, I can't say that I call myself feminist because I'm not nearly as versed in um, really any of the literature. I dabble in it, but not enough to say that I could call myself that. But by the same token, I absolutely love it and agree with it. So for me to get to read this and understand the other side of it like that whole thing about um giving up power and that's something that women don't really have as a you know like as a um a luxury because they've already been asked to give up power since they were born basically Mm -hmm. whereas as a man we were we were never even given it yeah yeah whereas so how can you give up yeah you know it can work for me because i'm like oh yes it's a revelation yeah i could do that yeah it's like women have been asked their entire lives to surrender I knew that this book was good because it really pushed some of my buttons, though. Like, I, there were pieces about it that... Because um, I have experienced the 12 steps in another... Like, it just made me think so much. Because I, I... The whole feminist piece and admitting to myself the, that there is a wound there. Like, I think, for me, I have a hard time... Like, I'm super feisty. And if a man's does certain things to me, I blow up in his face. Right. As you have experienced. Not to you. No, but I've I've seen seen it. I've seen it. (laughs) It's awesome. But it's a little bit probably counterproductive, right? But so I don't think of myself as having experienced these, um, the abuses of the patriarchy, even though I know it's all around us. And, And in fact, I guess the one that hurts me the most that seems like the the primal first one is our relationship to nature and I, she doesn't get into that as much here right but i feel like to me that's the mother the ultimate mother and the way that we have have engaged with nature with nature and the way mm-hmm. technology is cutting us off from nature i think that is you know, a big part of people's wounds right now. I think it's huge. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the biggest points of contention in our collective unhappiness is this disconnect between our the nature and being out and being part of ourselves and observing it through the screen. Yeah. And that's the hardest thing is because we all we all love nature. We all you know 
subscribe to National Geographic, whatever. Like the pictures are gorgeous, but That's we no longer the are there. We're not in the womb. We're yeah. not in the 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 belly of it. Um, one, I want to find this bit that she has about kind of describing the difference between a sort of more masculine approach and feminine because I feel like it really explains vis-a-vis recovery it explains how I feel about food and rules Uh and what I believe like Vinny was about and what my um yeah so our and but I also think we all have masculine feminine sides and I have a really strong masculine side and then I like we all have that yeah, you know? I, I think I've told you before, when I was in drawing class in college, uh, one of the teachers told me that um, my drawings were very feminine, and then she immediately stepped back and like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't, and I was like, no, no, like, thank you, that's really awesome, because I personally feel like, even though I'm a pretty rough, troll-looking dude, I have a lot of feminine in my energy, and that's who I am. Well, and I think that's one of the coolest things about restaurants, is they allow, they actually the stereotype of restaurants is that men are uh, restaurant dudes and, and obviously some shitty things have happened. I'm not apologizing anyone, but the part of restaurants that is, we create wombs for people to come in and we feed you. I mean, how maternal is that? And I have known some hard baked, tatted up, been to jail many times dudes who remembered that some little old lady likes her cob, like no eggs in her cob salad. Right. Right. Like there is, uh, uh, and this is totally unspoken, but there is a quality of being able to be a food person and a restaurant person that is very feminine, um, yeah. and allows that side. I mean, and it might be it, it's it might be sort of acceptable, which right? Is, and it and might be so cloaked crazy. in like you know a bunch of foul language and even some inappropriate behaviors. But there is on other other side like a real like maternal aspect of restaurants that allows guys to to indulge that yeah to be that yeah absolutely um so i like i liked her this is how she describes i mean and i've heard this before we talk about this molly is obsessed with this in pilates um our masculine aspect tends toward achievement accomplishment doing driving forcing it is a top-down energy that is focused and goal-oriented is it is our get shit done and power through it at all costs energy and it dominates almost every system that exists in the Western world. And then the fit, there's more, but that's enough. The feminine aspect or feminine energy is receptive, relational, and flowing. Where masculine energy is destructive, the feminine is creative and the source of all creation. It's what allows us to bring forth new projects and ideas and ways of being and then nurture them into existence. Feminine energy is inclusive and it's able to multitask and take multiple perspectives. It's multi-tracked and meandering and energized, and it dances circles around that single-tracked, focused masculine energy. I feel like that that masculine-feminine piece that she describes gave me a lot of clarity about what why I feel so frustrated with the whole thirty, for instance. Uh huh. And was she our, champions in this? I know exactly. <laughs> Having women in particular, but men too, put a bunch of rules on themselves about food is also really counter it just doesn't work and it's it's no it's a it's based on this idea that we can't trust ourselves and she's so against that right that we can't trust our appetites right it's yeah I think what was fun for me is that I really identified with her and her journey in this book so even though it was wrote from her very unique perspective I really identified with a lot of it like in my early to mid 20s I was 
depressed and, um, you know, finding a relationship was the only thing that mattered at that point. And I felt like I had to go out to the bars to meet the ladies. And so I'd go out to the bars and I'd get destroyed. And then no lady would want to be anywhere near me because I was a <laughs> disgusting mess. And I just repeated that process over and over and over until I woke up one day. And I was like, you know, I'm seeing a lot of my friends like going down a dark hole. Those friends would later pass away because of it. And I didn't want any part of it. And so I moved out here and I left, I physically left that life to come and do this. But it was the waking up one day and realizing this is insane. I keep doing this. The same result keeps happening and it's awful. What am I doing with my life? And then I just, I blew it all up. Like, all right, I got to go. You know, the bottles of whiskey, the endless nights of beers until 4am in the after hours, you know, restaurant homie spots. It's all got to go. I just, I can't. And I could see that if I stayed there, I would continue doing it because obviously it's Tuesday night and, you know, the homies pouring shots. Last call was two hours ago, but who cares? And so that's just the life I was in. And I just woke up with that piece of clarity. I was just like, this is insane. Yeah. What am I doing? Yeah. Those moments are hella gifts. It's super, super cool. But it's just the beginning, right? Yeah, but that's just the beginning. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's totally like, and that's, and what she says in here, you know, like when you're at that lowest point at the beginning where you've recognized that this is crazy, the world around you hasn't, that's when everyone starts kicking the crap out of you, when you need friends the most. And because you've decided that you're not going to follow them there, all of a sudden you are that pariah. You're you're out on the outside of society because now you're scary. Yeah. Because, you know, um, the other thing, I just, this, this just got me thinking so much about all the different ways in which we're addicted. And, you know, that like tech detox is this thing I want us to do next, or I'm hoping that we can create these amazing that, farm places. Because I see there's almost like addiction commingling, like the plane thing is like, like, there's like, there's no safety net. Like, this, the world doesn't have, you, you didn't used to be able to get that fucked up on something all of the time in quite with quite the facility and ease that you can now. Oh yeah. And um yeah, I just I just think that's another piece and that, and this is me just being honest because if I learned anything from this book, it's like don't edit yourself, dude. Like yeah. I I'm not going to not say what I thought sucked about this book as much as I loved it, you know what I mean? Right. I was like cuz I found myself editing like, "Well, I shouldn't say that." No, you know? That's her I think I felt like that was the greatest part of this book is that her like unabashed um commitment to her truth yeah and even though her truth is not uh my truth entirely i respected a lot of it the parts that i didn't agree with same with alan carr it's like that i disagree with this for these reasons but that's great and that and it brought up conversation i'm allowed to have like so the i want her to dig more into and her in her work and her because she has a whole sobriety school now that she does. The Tempest? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think the she's remarkably glib about just giving up bulimia. I mean, but there wasn't maybe space here for that. Got, got it. But right. everything she's talking about really does apply and is so much more plugged into females' relationships to their body. That's one thing. And then the other thing is... I get what she says about you got to address what is killing you first. In fact, she has. Right. There's a great line about knowing what fucks with you 
153. Let me read this really fast. So um, she's like, hear me on this. There are some things you can fuck with. There are some things you can't know the difference. And then she goes through things I can fuck with. Alcohol, pot, cigarettes, sticking things down my throat to puke up my food. Things, sorry, things I can't fuck with. Alcohol, pot, cigarettes, sticking things down my throat to puke up my food. Diets of any kind or restriction of food. Starvation, counting calories, men named Francesco, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And then she's like, things I can fuck with. Coffee, gluten, dairy, mayonnaise, credit cards, blah, blah, blah. So, and as I'm reading that, I was like, oh man, I can't fuck with credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> Not so what I'm saying is I know the difference between the things that take me down into a hole, the things that would destroy me, and the things that might not be great for me, but I do anyways, because there is a difference. And I think that's so true. And, and yeah. it, But that takes a lot of self-honesty, and you often have to sober up on your most addictive, destructive habit first before you can really have that self-honesty, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think tech addiction right now is so much bigger of a problem that anyone is allowed to talk about. And if you say oh, yeah. it, you sound like a super annoying Debbie Downer. But I feel like I'm looking around at people becoming robots mm-hmm. and just losing their agency so rapidly. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of things in here that she does, including her entire school. It doesn't exist in the flesh. It exists online that are encouraging people to go down that rabbit hole and that it is dangerous for a lot of people. Um, I think it's dangerous for all people. Like, one thing that I've noticed, um, especially, you know, having a four-year-old, is that we we obviously don't let him... And she even uses that as an example of yeah. how we're all inherently addictive, but go on, go well, on. Well, so, like, we don't let him watch um, TV because just specific to him, if he watches more than 30 minutes of TV in a setting... It scrambles his little brain, and he just gets crazy and aggressive, and you can see this change in him. So we don't do that for him. But then what I notice is that as we're running around the day, if I happen to pull up my phone and get too engrossed in email or anything else, all of a sudden um, he'll ram into me and press his face into me as hard as he can, and I realize that he does that when he feels like I'm not paying attention to him. And so I started really looking at that going, oh my God. I myself am constantly sucked into the screen and he's calling me out on it. What but what am I doing though? Because then I started trying to think like, well, I have to do these things because... It's like, no, it's so no, justified. Like that's the thing. It's socially forced now. It's like, yeah. it's, it's a requirement of life. Yeah. And, and she talks too about how she used to be the person who was very prompt yes. on answering and doing yes. all these things. And for me, I was like, you know, when I'm, when I'm at home, there's not a whole lot of change that I can affect. And there are certain things that I do need to help with, but often that's a phone call, you know, that's a text. It's not me sitting there scrolling Reddit, looking at all these things just for a second, because just for a second becomes an hour or two hours. Like, I've learned incredible, interesting, weird things, and I've also wasted far too much of my life on those weird, strange things that aren't going to help me with anything. Well, that's the thing that when she's talking about connection, like we're all desperately trying to feel connected by being online. And yet it's disconnected us in so many ways Mm -hmm. because we need one another in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Like we are social beings and she talks about that too. But there's been so much enabling of disconnect. Um, It's so lucrative. Yeah. Like like I think about us all in our own little rooms, like, 
dicking around on screens and sending one another little missives instead of just hanging out. And right. that's, that is happening. We've seen it. Yeah. We've seen a 500% increase in our to-go business and since we opened. Mm-hmm. 500%. Which means instead of coming in, chilling with us, hanging out, having a lemonade, have, like our customers are... You know, 20 to 25% of our customers are holding up in their, their houses having to go. I'm off. I have to go too. I am that customer too. Right. So, no, no judgment here except for I think that we need to figure out what we're giving up here when we constantly accept, accept screen time as a substitute for human time. Right. Well, I think too, like I've noticed just for myself, like because I love making connections with our customers, like the regular people. And um, just the other day at Modern, I ran into a lovely lady who I talk about books with. And I hadn't seen her in two months. And the first thing she says is, hey, what you reading? And I was telling her all about it and getting all amped up. And that was also kind of a funny experience because I'm like, oh, I'm reading Quit Like a Woman. <laughs> and she's like, kind of looked at me like, uh, do you have a problem? And I'm like, no, no, no you know, it's, you know, this podcast, but it's, it's honestly like this amazing book about like lifestyle choices. It's great. But, um, you know, I, so I had these wonderful interactions with people like that, but then there's a whole segment of our customer base that I only see as to go people. So we get maybe anywhere between one and 10 minutes of actual like FaceTime. And so we don't have that same kind of deep understanding of each other's lives. I have no idea whether or not they read books. I don't know what they're into. All I know is their name and what they like on their to-go. And I find that really sad because all the people who I've met you know, over the course of the last seven, eight years who I have deep, meaningful connection with, we have it's so great to see them and it makes me feel really happy when they walk in the door. And with the to-go people, it's always nice. Like, hey, you know, how are you doing? But we don't have that same thing. And I've missed that. Yeah. And I think that's the crazy thing. It's like even in a restaurant, you know, like their social circle is far removed from mine. That's the only point of contact we have, but we still have meaningful contact. Well, and that's how communities have worked for a long ass time. Like, con- yeah. like that. It's only recently that you know huge big companies where you are sending your money really far away began to fill such a huge percentage of people's commercial needs, right? Mm-hmm. And restaurants have been the holdout. They've been, you know, yeah, and and you know now we're even, you know, under under attack because we're getting mediated by Facebook and Instagram and these delivery apps and there the the quote I found about connection is, I mean, and there that that's why this book is so good. It's got it's just got entree into so many things. So not to it's great not to yeah. throw the whole capitalism thing under the bus, but <laughs> she she gets on that too, and that's that's. In other words, capitalism causes disconnection, and disconnection causes addiction. And that is Johan Hari's whole idea. His book, Lost Connections, everyone has to read who struggled with depression. Um, So anyway, she goes on. Maybe this seems like a tangent or some radical anti-capitalist perspective that has nothing to do with an argument for why we need people. It's not. The root of what is wrong in our society is that we have lost both our power as individuals and our connection to one another. To seek to regain these things is not to argue for socialism. It is to argue for lives where we are singular and autonomous individuals who are free to express our truest nature while simultaneously feeling we are part of something larger than ourselves. We need to claim our uniqueness and our individually in individuality, and we need to belong not despite we need to belong not despite this individuality, but because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I 
think that's an awesome quote. And yeah, it's great because that's the other thing about being so sucked into the digital world is it's um, we all subconsciously homogenize and it's really scary. We make ourselves behave for that. We 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 become obedient. Like I just was thinking about who's the device here, who's plugged in, and who's. Who's the device and who's the user? It's starting to get real muddled. It yep. sort of feels like we're the devices getting used. And I, I think if this somehow gets, goes out into the ether and gets back to Holly one day, I hope she uses her incredible voice and her power and her just feisty say what she believesness to take on tech because she's asking people to go out there and be bold about things that are very personal and still very sensitive. And then that action by all those people that she's talking to is being mined for data in a very masculine way by right. a few companies who are making billions of dollars off of it. And I just have so much that pains me, you know, that there's, there's no restriction on that, you know, right. that people's most intimate, private, personal struggles and moments can then be monetized, you know. Um, Absolutely. I mean, even in, you know, not healthy ways, you know, like who's to say, like YouTube famously was, the algorithm was suggesting bulimia videos to people who started off like eventually it would make it down the way to eating disorder videos if you uh -huh. started off reading about health. And so I just, I think she needs to take on, I think she needs to take that on with her platform because it's, I think it's just huge right I now. I think we all need to really take on the ownership of our own data and push back against it. Like, I remember when I hurt my knee, um, I think I was just running around far too much and um, like fatigued my knee, so I was wearing a knee brace. But then within maybe a day or two of buying the knee brace at uh, CVS or wherever, not only was I getting um, ads in my inbox about knee braces, but I was getting random robocalls about knee surgery. And I was like, how, how in the hell does the, the collective cloud know that my knee hurts and wants to sell me a bunch of BS? And I'm getting like the straight up scammers talking about how they can get me, you know, some Medicare devices. I'm like, what? Well, I told you. <laughs> no. It's like, I told you the guy at Whole Foods in Bellingham when I was visiting my mom and dad. He, he asked me if I was an Amazon Prime member, and I'm like, no, I'm not a really big fan of Jeff Bezos, and I'm like, I'm not really cool with them using everything, all of my purchases to to then try to sell me more things and to stalk me all over the real world now and the internet. Mm -hmm. I said this to the poor schmuck at the right, <laughs> checkout. Like, so he, you want a bag of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he was like, yeah, but there's... I think I, t I called you about this because I was so... I was like, whoa. He, he said, yeah, but there's no getting away from it. There's nothing to do about it. And he was like a young, vibrant kid. And his, his conclusion was that this very clear more, and then I'll get away from this because I'm, being, I'm, being, I'm beating a dead horse here, but uh, <laughs> you know me on this subject. No, well, I, mean, uh, I, I have to be you. cut off. But like, I was going, shit, like the, the youth can't even be pissed about this. Like usually like the sixties and seventies were all about young people revolting against things. And then like Holly's all like, fuck the patriarchy. And then this young kid is like, there's nothing you can do, man. And he, I walked off and he's like, good luck avoiding the big eye. Uh. <laughs> like, little shit. Uh. 
Well, it's, it's org assimilation is what it is. Like and then I, I, like, wanted, mm. I told him, I was like, you should read Shoshana Zuboff's book, or Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. You know, her argument is that human, human nature is the new, it is the... The raw material of surveillance capital. Mm-hmm. He was like, he was gone. Anyways. Oh no, he was like, absolutely not. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. There was no, there was, there was no helping it. Uh, yeah. But but again, resistance, like resistance, even when it's un- inconvenient. Like I feel like I have been quieting myself about these things that I believe because they make me sound whiny or negative or not. And I'm like, if anything, like Holly's book, she's like fucking speak up don't censor yourself yeah you know? and say your truth yeah and 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 don't censor yourself because you're a woman or because you think you're supposed to always you know make people feel good all the time you right. know which i mean that's our business and it feels good to do that but in terms of speaking your beliefs i think as i think yeah i also like I when she's really empowered when she's talking about how you should sit in the uncomfortableness and then quoted uh, Pema, Pema Chodron, mm-hmm. um, when she's like, you know, every emotion lasts for 90 seconds yeah. and then it goes. Uh, but we are always are running from uncomfortable situations. But yes. just let yourself feel it. Let yourself be there. Yeah. And Why are we so freaked out by pain? Like emotional pain. I think it's because of our, like our herd nature, our um, growing in little communities. And if you were against the communities mindset then that put you in danger of potentially being ostracized you know left out without any food you're screwed so we we tend to try to um make everything okay in the group yeah that that i I run from that so hard i have we talked last time about how and i thought this was an interesting example of how our perspectives are slightly gendered in that we we talked about Instead of just being what you were saying, how instead of just being with someone or, or like just letting them, you're thinking about how you could get what you like, you know, there's always like a hedge or an angle. Uh-huh. And I have that same thing, except for me, it's always like, well, I'm going to, you know, I can be pretty feisty, but a lot of times I'm trying to like give people what they need to hear. Right. I'm afraid. And Stephen Colbert calls this sitting with the bomb. The opposite of that is you know, love the bomb. Uh-huh. So he's a comedian who's famous for saying the most unfucking comfortable things and then just <laughs> sitting with it. And in co- being a comedian, it's like you say the thing that bombs and that must be so painful up there on stage. But he's like, you've got to love the bomb. Like to be able, everything in us revolts against that. We want to fill the space. We want to, I'm sorry, or we want to whatever. We want to backtrack. Yeah. It's so hard for us to just sit with the bomb. And yeah, and sitting with that uncomfortable truth, even if it's a, a tiny little thing, can be so awful, the worst thing in the world. And I think that's one of the weirdest things about us as uh, an animal, is that we'd much rather make our own personal situation worse so that others don't feel discomfort, mm-hmm. rather than just being like, no, this is my truth and it's uncomfortable. That's a good segue into the one. She has these kind of core beliefs, looking at your core beliefs. And one of them, we talked about this a little earlier. One of the ones that's hardest to take, but then after the fact, you're like, ah, I see that. It, she says, choose guilt over, what is it? Choose guilt over resentment. resentment. Yeah. So, you know, oh man. That was such a good. That's big for you. It was huge. That you cannot huge. say no. No. I mean, I can't either, but you're worse. No. I, well, the <laughs> funny thing saying. is, I can say no for you. And that's, and that's, I feel like, one of my biggest assets is <laughs> I can tell people no on your behalf. 
but I can't tell people no for me or anything else. And this is yeah, Avery. This is the person who will make hand make ketchup in the middle of a busy shift for someone because we don't have ketchup yep, around, ranch. or drive and get ice cream when we run out in the middle of the yep. shift. Like part of that is what makes you a good restaurant, right? But right. even you know managing our staff and that was just a really it hit me hard when I read that I was just like oh man that is so legit that is so good yeah no choose to be uncomfortable and say no and disappoint somebody rather than disappoint yourself and then live with the resentment that's going to last long after they've forgotten that you said no to whatever it was right and can and just distorts reality like so you're just going to feel you're going to heap all of your story onto this person Mm -hmm. instead of just, oh, that was shitty that I did that. I feel bad. And you can forgive yourself for it. Yeah. And I think um, people who do have dangerous substance abuse problems or dangerous imbalances, they tend to not ever put themselves first or they don't, they always are trying to, ironically, I mean, because the, 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 the book is that everyone, you know, addicts are crazy selfish, but part of that is, you know, never putting themselves and their well-being in the equation. And, right. and that's and, and then constantly letting everyone else be more important or other things be more important than them. And then using alcohol as a crush to just p- crutch to power through or whatever, right. you know. Well, I think, too, like what's funny about it is that that narrative that the um, addict is super selfish is in a way very selfish of society because nobody actually cares to know what makes that person want to be there? What makes that person hurt in such a way? Like I had a friend who uh, passed away from uh, an overdose on Oxycontin. And at his funeral, his family was so mad and screaming about how selfish he was and what a jerk he was. And just recently, I was talking to somebody close to me who's talking about that same thing, that addicts are selfish and they can just choose not to do that, but they're only focused on themselves. And from my personal experience, I'm like, it was really awful and it, it affected a lot of us in the community and we all hurt differently. But knowing that person very closely and personally, I also know that those choices weren't because of some unchecked hedonism that he couldn't get away from. It was a deep, deep uh, emotional pain that ended up consuming him. Yeah, I bet this is a perfect segue into talking about her self-care and ritual stuff, which I actually thought was some of the sweetest stuff in the book, but also willpower from Alan Carr. Mm-hmm. Because you said what you just said touches on both of those things. The other myth about alcoholics or whoever, whatever's, <laughs> yeah. is that they don't have willpower. And it's actually totally the opposite. And, and that's Alan Carr's argument that people who who tend to be addicts tend to have extremely strong wills, and that's kind <laughs> right. of the problem. And then Holly fleshes out the brain function by which basically our lizard brain right. is it the lizard brain or the mammal brain? I can't remember which one is flooding our brain with, with the, you know the dopamine response is overpowering you know our neocortex, our, our, our the part of our brain that that control that is rational and and makes plans and is is basically our homo sapiens brain right and it gets it gets overpowered by this dopamine response um which bt dub is exactly what screens do to our brains too but anyways well i was feeling that today at the dentist you know like i 
all of my uh, reasoning and logic completely gone because I'm terrified of them. And afterwards, I was trying to, you know, like she says, the bunny shakes it off. And I was like, how do I shake this off? Because that was a really horrible experience. Uh. Dennis, bring up, like, yeah, that brings up a lot of primal fear. Yeah, for just people. pulled up total primal fear for me. And even though, like, the, the experience was great, the people were great, everything about it was objectively great. I left there super, like, shaken because I just am terrified <laughs> of it. Well, and we guilt ourselves for that. And there's so many things that we're doing in society that are basically hijacking um, people's lizard and mammal brains. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's happening in all these different ways. And then we guilt ourselves for, and, and obviously for our survival through time, that was a more immediate that needed to be a more immediate response system. Right, and you need to override everything. Oh, actually, I think that what we have here is a gravity situation. You know, I mean, <laughs> like, of course that, like, fucking fear is faster than math, right? Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> it, that makes, that, I think, was an empowering little bit, too, because it also Alan Carr was talking about you have actually strong-willed people in addicts because they're... The, the, and, and there's this duality where there's the 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 addiction in that crazy voice and and then that is really our animal our lizard brain right and the part of us that wants better that wants to make better choices right but then it's overridden by the chemical that just is like yeah no this is good for the body and so we're gonna do this that's why I always wanted vinaigrette not to be to be this warm, safe, emotionally supportive place. So it was it was appealing to that emotional. It's like the value in our in our cheesy, you know, employee handbook. Eating is an emotional act, and and trying to get, you know, wanting to respond in a loving way to that part of people that has just been beat down, right? You know, and and shooted to death. You and it's know? also that's why people get so upset when things aren't right because it is entirely an emotional thing and so when it's good it's amazing mm-hmm. and when it's bad it's exemplary of everything bad in their lives oh my god I, f- I just found this it's a Shakespeare sonnet and it ends with lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds and that to me is why our customers get mad when we suck Yeah. because when something that's clearly set itself up to be amazing drops the ball right no one gives a shit in all subs when there's a long line around the door. The whole place smells like burnt chimichangas. And <laughs> in fact, that's like that's part of the charm. In exactly. Fact. Yeah. But if we melt down when yeah. our whole thing, we're a lily, we're not a weed. Yeah. Lilies that fester smell far worse than oh, weeds. Absolutely. You know. Yeah, and and I think when I first started the business, that, that was one of the biggest um, problems for me. Is like. Why are we held to this incredible standard when I walk anywhere else and I see these things and nobody cares? It's like, right, because why would they? Because it's not, it's not been given. Whereas that's, a, that's what we're understood to do is bring this amazing beauty and this wonderful thing. So when we don't miss that, or when we miss that mark and we don't give it to them, we have super failed. And I see that because you don't, you don't see you know, like the, the grace and the beauty every day. But in the failure, you see it. And that's when it's like, right, we didn't hit the mark, and this is where we're supposed to be. Yeah. But we didn't do that, and that's why these people are super angry. And they're going to go right down the street, have the exact same experience, and super not care, 
because it was never promised over there. Right. But we promised that. Yeah. And that we wanted to be a more holistic strategy, a more holistic solution. And that's one thing that I, I loved about, um, so some of, I think her sweetest writing, her most just loving speaking of just wanting to provide that loving care like her stuff about self-care and ritual and like Mm self-parenting is some of the sweetest stuff in the book um and i thought that was really great yeah like it 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 gave me a because we're santa fans like we we think that we know self-care you know we go to oho we do these things but sometimes what i realized when she was talking about ritual and the importance of ritual. She references that guy, Habit, the guy Charles Duhigg or whatever his name. I've, I've mispronounced every name I oh, say on this. That's so bad. <laughs> the Habit book where, you know, you basically have, you know, there's some sort of trigger. And then what's the middle thing? There's a, there's a trigger and then an action and then a reward. Uh-huh. And so you have to change the middle action because the rewards always got to say is going to stay essentially the same right so you choose a healthier uh habit essentially and and i started thinking about yeah like maybe i'm not like you know offshoot you know we're not addicts uh, according to whatever that means or i don't have some sort of major out of wax you know uh addiction right now but i'm still racing through life in a way that isn't loving at all right like on a lot of days Right. And and the way she talks about just being gentle with yourself and the way that you have to be when you're trying to make some sort of big change, it was just really good for me to hear. I loved it because I think you and I talk a lot about ritual, um, you know, over the course of our friendship. Like, we're always talking about the various rituals that make us happy. But I also realized, you know, that I don't often honor them. And that's one of the biggest things that she's talking about is holding to them. Like, that uh, meeting where she was late and she was about to skip her uh, ritual of the uh, lemon water and then the coffee and dancing. It's like, no, I'm going to do that first, and then I'm going to go in. And that allowed her to be so much more present in the meeting, in her day, by giving herself love first, and then giving that love to the world. And I I thought this was so smart because her her point being that, like, a craving, she's talking about cravings when a lot of this comes out, Mm -hmm. up. A craving at 5 p.m. starts in the morning, right? Yeah. We, and we we all tend to have, like, just, you know, just work ourselves up to this fever pitch of hyperactivity. You and I are both big. If yeah. there's anything we're addicted to, it's fucking caffeine. Let's yep, be honest. Yeah. We have ca- coffee yeah, all around us right, right now. <laughs> um, so there's a tendency to just work and work and work work yourselves up and then just expect it to just, you know, hey, like, you know, you just ignore yourself all day. And then, of course, you're fiending for something that's a, qu- a fix that can bring you down from that by the end of the day. Right. And she's talking about how you jackhammer yourself back down. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, I think also, I feel like she talks about this. I can't remember. Um, but she talks about essentially how our, um, our mental fortitude is a finite resource. And when we constantly give it away to the screen, to the emails, to the million requests that we get during the day, by the time five o'clock hits, we have nothing left because we've already given it all away. Yes. We didn't start the day easing into it and not giving it away immediately by like reading the news or doing whatever. The willpower thing. Yeah. That was brilliant because that, 
yes, we beat ourselves up so bad for not having an endless source of willpower. Like, and, and, and she's like, you need to manage that shit like a finite quantity and your energy, finite quantity. It's not endless. It doesn't like it's, so I, I thought the willpower thing was like just looking at yourself and that's the mothering, the self parenting thing Yeah. with a little bit more objectivity instead of, instead of just going, you know, just feeling immediately bad that you're not doing the writing or that you're not doing the thing or you're not doing this thing. It's like, well, how, you, you can step back and look at your brain function and look at your willpower and look at all these things and, and, and embrace the larger framework in which those things exist. And ritual is the way to sort of honor that receptacle. Yeah. Because the other thing about having a ritual is, I find for me the biggest bugaboo is to get, and we talked about this with Pima a little bit, is to wake up and just get shunted into an idea about the day. Yeah. Instead of just being in the day. And a ritual kind of just brings you back to the moment. You know, even something she's big into the, you know, hot water and lemon. I'm like, oh my God, I love that. Because I know it's, you know, those little things where you start and end the day with yourself. Mm -hmm. And not just getting like sucked into this vortex of a concept about the day. Right, yeah, the the narrative of the day that's been fed to you rather than... Like, um, this sucks, or this is good, or I've got this right. much to do. I'm really stressed out already. <sighs> like, it's like... Yeah, yeah, it's so easy to get caught in that. Just like, oh, my God. Where And I, as what's funny is I was listening to uh, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth as I was driving up here, and he was talking all about being in the now. And I think that that's a huge thing, is just learning how to be in the now. And, you know, as she says, like, being okay with the uncomfortable situations, the not-so-great things, and also the lovely things. But you can't do that if you've, like, lit the rocket boosters and just shot out the door. You won't have any way to slow yourself down, stop, take stock. It doesn't exist. But if you gave yourself that base of the ritual in the morning and then when you get home, the ritual at night, you know, even, like, the... I think she talks about brushing your teeth and uh, flossing and that had become part of a ritual. And I myself find that to be really calming and soothing, and I know that after I've flushed and br- brushed my teeth, then it's time to go to bed, and I fall asleep pretty easily because I've done the things. But if I don't do my things, I'll probably just stay up reading stupid news articles until 12 o'clock at night and then wonder why everything's going to hell because I haven't taken care of myself. And I think that's one of the coolest things about the ritual. Yeah, well, she talks about the dual, and I felt this for a long time, the dual nature of any addiction or any lack, you know, lack of balance, right, is like, first of all, and and I had compared this when we were talking earlier to like mold, right? Right. If you're, if first you have to have the circumstances, the like, you know, the dark lack of circulation, the moist conditions that like, so you have these unhealthy conditions and then the organism grows, the black mold or whatever. And addiction first has, you know, a set of conditions that are unhealthy. And then you get an actual behavior that roots in that Mm -hmm. and fucks everything up. Oh yeah. And then it starts crawling out into the light and the other good parts of your life. It starts in those broken and damaged places and then soon it's encompassing everything in your life and it's the sole focus which is also I think both uh, Carr and Whitaker talk about how alcohol becomes the sole focus of everything that you do and suddenly it's like well how could I go to a party and not have a drink 
can I even go to a bar? All my friends are planning on drinking on Friday. What am I going to do? Yeah. And so suddenly you're focused on this one substance. Yeah. And it's everything in your life, and it and it means something to every facet of right. your life. Right, it's grown and grown and gotten into all the. And I think one of the interesting things about Holly, like if you look at AA, which she really is not a big fan. Like she loves many things of it, and I'll right. we can get to that. But like that AA would definitely say, like the first thing you have to do is to bleach all the the mold away. Like you right. have to stop the addiction first. And she sort of says that, but she also acknowledges that you know she's gonna if you also start you can work on both at the same time in the sense that she was still drinking as she was beginning to put these rituals in place that were lessening her need for it right so that would be like you know shooting air into the dark you know the 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 crevices and stuff getting sunlight in there like she started to work on the conditions in her life that were creating the addiction and the addiction at the same time. I think that's what I found so powerful about her book and why I was not such a fan of Carr because I felt like he failed, like he made the great case for why alcohol is an unnatural substance that only will damage you. There's no real good aspect of drinking. He destigmatized it. Yes. I think that's the word. Uh, Yeah, but what I thought was a missed opportunity was that he wasn't suggesting the other changes that you make about your life to make that possible. He just, in in my read of it, he just showed up at the very end and was like, and now that you know that this is terrible, you will never want to do it again and it's going to be great. Right. And I was like, but what about <coughs> all of the other underlying factors? Yeah. The friend group, the reasons that you hurt, the reasons that you go there. Whereas she was like, I hurt. These are the things that are totally messing me up, and this is why I do this. But So what do I need to change so that this isn't a thing for me anymore because I don't want to wake up in a pile of my own vomit? What do I do? So here's this is a perfect, a perfect, perfect thing that you just brought up because he's a man and she's a woman. Right. And, this, and she talks about this. And this, it brings up, she talks about the way that masculinity and men, the patriarchy, um, have co-opted spirituality and that's her beef with um the 12 steps is that it was created by the patriarchy it was created in the 30s for upper class white men now mm-hmm. i don't agree with all of that um I, I agree with parts of that but i also think there is so much femininity happening in those 12-step rooms and that she conveniently shifts levels when she's talking about her not- notion of surrender and the way aa talks about surrender so there was, I feel like there's some semantic issues there, but that point is really interesting to me and felt like a fucking one, a major, major shit paradigm shift for me because I have always beat myself up when I read really good books by men uh-huh. that are spiritual books, that are life change books, but there just seems to be less like there. This gets back to that masculine, feminine, patriarchy thing is. There's something in women, in me, let's just say, that I don't accept some of these ideas or programs easily. Uh-huh. Like, for, it was very black and white for Alan Carr. Like, he, right. his whole thing is very black and white. And Holly's is very messy and very... Yeah. Big old messy vagina. I'm sorry, like, compared no, to Alan true, Carr. But the funny thing <laughs> is, that big messy vagina 
approach <laughs> to me was more like life. And for Alan Carr, I was like, I feel like that could potentially work for me if I too, you know, went to a golf club and did these things, but that's not my existence. That's not the way that I live. So I don't have the same resources that he's assuming that everybody has. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, well, of course it's easy to quit because you just quit doing this and then you do this and you you work on your 401k. And I was like, that's, you know, that's you. That's great. But she's allowing for everything. Just like, yeah, your life is messy. It's weird. And you need to be dealing with the root of it rather than him being like, we're going to analyze the substance find out why it's bad and now that we understand it we can just walk away from it i think and i think what his entire focus in that book is breaking was was it was basically a sort of hypnosis of Mm -hmm. breaking people's really broken beliefs about how sick they are and how desperate and unfixable they are and i think that was his purpose but it is it did just sort of ring with some of the like neat and tidy simplicity but i've seen that enough like the guy who wrote untethered soul Mm -hmm. um can't remember his name right now, but I've read Untethered Soul and The Surrender Experiment, which is his second book. And they're both so good. And I got total high from those books and so much sweetness and such depth and surrender. But on another level, it was like he just was like, I surrendered my life and figured out how to do this. And then one thing led to another, and now I'm a billionaire. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, like, there was nothing about the difficulty, the tension, like, nothing of the Pima or the... There was... And I always have a little... Even in spiritual things, even in spiritual programs, there's a part of me that rebels. And uh-huh. that... Uh, I've always felt really bad about that. And now I kind of understand it. Because I think one of the books that she references in here, my mom... My mom found this book by the way she's cool way awesome. cooler than me but there's <laughs> a book awesome. referenced in here about this woman who's just been like she's a mystic and she's been researching fe- you know female mystics and how basically 2500 years ago or so give or take right spirituality was kind of the realm of women's and female shamans and that was like in Absolutely. hunter-gatherer culture that was more so even further back the females, you know, that was more of the, the a feminine role in tribes and and peoples. Right. And that, it has been taken from women. Absolutely. And, and, and it has become a patriarchal thing. Um, no, and so that maybe the reason I'm rebelling is because there's some part of me that doesn't, like the circling back to the beginning that, doesn't accept that I have to submit to yet this other patriarchal thing. Right, or that you don't have enough agency in yourself to have that sort of a revelation. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's one of the hardest things about most of the male-dominated spiritual things is like it's just an unassailable assumption that this dude has the truth. And that was, I guess, the reason I left the Catholic Church when I was like seven or eight. And I was like, these people don't have the truth. They don't have it on lock. What, what is this? But I think you're supposed to accept that whatever this male spiritual teacher is just has a lock on it, mm-hmm. and that's just how it is. The one piece that I, I felt, uh, that felt r- like a release on one level, understanding there's a, but then for me, the thing that I am surrendering, the thing that I'm wanting to let go of and release and submit, if you will, 
is my masculine ego, uh-huh. is the part of me that's always shooting me to death, that's always, there is ego, right? right. And, you know, there, there is that voice that's such a dick. <laughs> and, and, you know, to me, that's kind of the devil, and that's the Course in Miracles attitude, like belief kind of, that like that's ego, that part of us that's just like, and obviously we needed ego to survive. Right. Um, but... On one hand, she's really anti how AA talks about ego, mm-hmm. but then she loves A Course in Miracles. And A Course in Miracles, I've done, and I love it too, but it is very on bordering on dualistic about, you know, ego bad, kind of. Uh-huh. And then, you know, Holy Spirit good. Like, so... I think too, like, it's really easy to dismiss an entire message based on your feeling about the organization because there are like, there are certain people where I will listen to them, hate their message because of one silly little thing and dismiss the entirety of it. Whereas that exact same message given by a different person, like even this happened to me recently. Um, I forget the author of the second mountain. Um, I listened to his Ted talk was absolutely pumped about it. And like, this is awesome. Half read his book. We didn't have time, so we're driving to Kansas, and we're listening to it on audiobook. The dude who's reading it on, on audiobook, I just could not get down with his voice, and I hated everything about it. And it took me until about, like, three hours into the drive that I realized that I was listening to The Second Mountain, because Nicole just put it on. I was like, wait, is this, is this that one dude that I really liked? Like, yeah. <laughs> I was like, cool, because I, in my head, I've just been raging for the last hour because right. this is horrible. Right. Because All because of this person's voice that I just wasn't really feeling and so all it takes is like uh, an aversion to the organization or the way that the message is given and suddenly the whole thing's thrown out yeah like I feel like there was a lot of well it just it definitely gave me a lot to think about and I agreed with so much of what she said but then I also felt like she was shifting levels when she was judging AA sometimes right and then in other parts she was embracing what they just say in a different way that's old-fashioned language, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and also... Yeah, I saw a lot of that in the book. I saw a lot of embracing certain aspects of it while generally having a negative opinion of it. The one thing I thought that is true... Um, so, like, the whole powerlessness thing and women accepting their power, on one level, yeah, man, we do fucking... Saying we're powerless is bad. But then surrender, that's just basically AA speak for surrender, which she's all about. So there's a level shift there. And she talks about that, like becoming small and also big at the same time. Thank you.